In the book of Job, we have the story of Job, a paragon of virtue, a man who suffers more than any man has ever suffered and bears it stoically and patiently. We also have the story of Job, a man who complains about his fate, blames God, says God is treating him like an enemy, and wonders if God is even good in the first place. Which is the real Job? We'll discuss. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Old Testament Lesson 32, I Know That My Redeemer Liveth. This is Gospel Doctrine, and this podcast has as its primary intended audience members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, we hope to address biblical topics and scriptural discussions that are relevant to all faiths. And so if you have any questions about what the what you seem to be missing, and you're not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then please feel free to send us a an email, as you can with any question, about any of the topics we've covered to gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and we will answer them as part of the program. Today we're studying Job, and what I've noticed is that in our, uh, from, from both the lesson manual and from the way the book is treated in conference, we have a we have a first level, what I would call a top level or a surface level understanding of the book of Job in the church, which is that this book is a, is a story of a historical person. He endured great suffering, but he endured it so well that God blessed him with double the things that he had. And I'll read you the, uh, I'll read you the headings from the, from the lesson manual so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. There are four headings. Job, number one, Job is sorely tested. Number two, Job finds strength in the Lord. Number three, Job finds strength in his personal righteousness and integrity. And number four, Job is blessed for faithfully enduring his trials. So that is one level of studying the book of Job. And we'll, we'll talk about, right now we're going to talk about the narrative of Job. And then we'll talk about what other levels of understanding there are within Jewish and Christian and philosophical thought. First of all, the the book follows a narrative structure that has an epilogue, a prologue and an epilogue bookending the story. And then in between those two are what are called the dialogues. And this is a back and forth poetic exchange between Job a group of friends of Job, and also God appears at the end. And they all speak to each other in poetry. The prologue begins with God in heaven, and it's almost a heavenly board meeting. God has called together what are called the sons of God. And these, the the Jewish belief or traditions around the angels in heaven have the sons of God, this this phrase appears a few times in the Old Testament, and it's not exactly well-defined, meaning they believe that there are angelic beings whose form they don't quite fully have explained. Um, you remember in the book of Genesis, it talks about giants, the sons of God, um, mixed with the children of, or the, the daughters of men. 
and these are thought to be giants, or the sons of God are angels, and angels aren't necessarily in the form of men, in at least uh, the, our present understanding of Old Testament times. So that's what that's who is described as being present, and in comes this figure, Satan, which we read as Satan today. We read that God and Satan have this discussion, this this very civil discussion about what to do about Job, and and God starts off by bragging about Job. And this is our first indication that this might be, rather than a a literal a, a story to be taken literally, that this might be an allegory. So similar to when you read Jacob chapter five. And you read about a husbandman who has a vineyard, and he's got to he's got to take care of these, uh, all, or he has an orchard, an olive orchard, and he's got to take care of these olive trees. And he's got to preserve. He's got to lay up fruit to himself against the season. And you don't actually think, oh, at some point there was an actual olive tree, and and this guy spent years grafting these branches in and out. You think, okay, this story is trying to teach me something. Well. Um, I'm going to refrain from saying definitively one way or the other um, which of the which of these two, whether it's history or fiction or, or allegory that that job that the book of Job is, but I will say that it reads very much like allegory. And if it's not allegory, then it is written excellently, just like one. And and we have a lot to learn from it, just like we would from a very instructive allegory. And so that is, to me, the most profitable way to read Job, whether or not it is the story of a historical man or not. Um, in other words, Job is often treated, and this is true not only in our, our Sunday school curriculum, but also in general conference and in church generally, the book of Job is treated as a historical work. And there's nothing wrong with that, but my my idea is that Job is, uh, instead of, we, we look at Job like an example. We look at Job as, if, if we're suffering, this is how we should suffer. The What happens to Job in just a chapter or two, we'll get to, but he, he loses everything and he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we look to Job as an example of how to withstand and endure our sufferings. And the idea that I'm going to talk about in this episode is, instead of an example, we can look to Job as an ideal. And if you were to construct the perfect person to learn from, almost like a thought experiment, then Job would be exactly what you would come up with. And by putting Job through a hypothetical ringer, and seeing how he reacts, then we can learn how people should react. And so that's, that is a very profitable way to read this, this book, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're in this meeting. God and Satan are having this meeting about Job. Now, let's spend a, a minute or two talking about the word Satan. In, in Hebrew, you know, we think as with a Christian or an LDS perspective, we think, uh, Satan is the enemy to God. He's the person who wants everyone to be miserable. He is tempting to all sorts of evil. But the Hebrew tradition and the this this figure in the Old Testament is quite different from that. The word actually means an adversary or even a prosecutor. So in a in a court of law, the opponent, 
the person set against you would be the would be the Satan. And in fact, uh, some translations have the before the name. And so we shouldn't think of this as the Satan as we know him, but we should think of him as someone who is set to prove almost, uh, I mean, we don't, we don't think of Satan as not being uh, an integral part of the plan of God, but we think of him as being an unwitting one. Whereas this, this prosecutor is someone who is cooperating and collaborating with God in bringing out the best in people. So Satan says to God, yes, I think Job is the most righteous of people, but he's only righteous because you've blessed him so much and you've protected him. So of course he's righteous. He's and and he and he kind of flips around what God says. God says, "I have blessed Job because he's righteous." And Satan says, "Well, no. Job is righteous because you've blessed him." And this is their point of disagreement. And and Satan says, well, "And if you think it's not true, then let me take everything away." And God gives him uh, his wish, which is another indication that we are dealing with in the realm of allegory. Because does anyone think that Satan appears to God and says, oh, somebody's righteous and they've been blessed. Well, let me toy with his life. Let me turn it upside down and see how he reacts. And God says, okay, you have all power over this person. Go ahead. And um, so phase one, God says, don't, don't touch his personal, don't touch his body. Don't, don't affect his health, but you can have power over everything else. And it describes Job as the richest of men. He has seven sons and three daughters. And so as another indication, seven is the ideal number. It means you're whole or perfect. And so the fact that Job has seven sons means that he has plenty of sons to carry on his name and increase the power and influence and the renown of his house. And the fact that he also has daughters only contributes to that. And Job is so righteous that he, every time his children get together and have a feast together, the next morning he sacrifices for all of them in case they've committed sins unwittingly. So he's almost beyond what you would expect from any person. He is the platonic ideal of righteousness. And God says, yes, Satan, you can take everything away. So it describes all the flocks. Uh, Job has, he has camels and he has sheep and he has donkeys and he has servants, and then he has all these children. And so one after the other, four servants run in. And before the first servant is even finished speaking, the second servant runs in. And they all carry these terrible news. Your donkeys are all killed. Your your camels are, have all been stolen. Your sheep were struck by lightning. And finally, your children were feasting together, as they sometimes do. And a mighty wind arose and blew all four walls of the house in and killed them all and I'm the only one to escape. So all four of these all four of these servants have the same story. I'm the only one to escape. And that's when Job uh, makes his pronouncement, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he bows down upon the earth and and he performs this Hebrew ritual of of mourning which is to put to rend his clothes and then put on sackcloth and uh spread ashes over himself. It's the utmost form of mourning, which is more than appropriate in Job's case. Next, Satan and God have another discussion, and God says, 
Can't you see? He says all the same things about Job that he said the first time. You know, behold my servant Job. Isn't he a model of integrity and righteousness? And then God adds, and he hasn't cursed me, even though you took away everything. And Satan says, well, now he's afraid of you. And a man will say, say anything to save his life. But if you you gave me a a limit before to not affect his health, but if you were to affect his health, take his health away, then I bet you he would curse you. And so, uh, once again, you know, we have the idea that God is somehow gambling with our misery, our, our happiness and our misery. And that's another indication that this is, this is a thought experiment. The experiment is what if all these things were true? And so we'll continue with this with this level of reading. This is this is the level where we're talking about these things more on a on a philosophical level and we're treating Job as an ideal. So so Job now is given these boils and everything that can be taken away from him is taken away. And so he's sitting on the ground by himself. He has nowhere to live. He's destitute and he he scrapes his skin with a broken piece of pottery and his servants, his children, his animals, all of his wealth, it's all gone. So he's reduced to just sitting around and feeling sorry for himself, scraping his skin. And this is where we take up the story with uh, Job himself. So we're sitting there with Job, and from a distance come the, what are called, who are called the three friends. Three men who are Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And Job, uh, I should have mentioned at the beginning, Job lives in a land called Uz. Now, the the three friends come from places that are that are known but are distant from Israel. And they are also distant from each other. And Uz is a place, Uz is a place that's not known at all. So, the, that should be another indication to you. Job is in a faraway land, and the events of the story are not connected to any other events in the Bible. So it's almost like long ago in a, in a village far away, there lived a man named Job. That's kind of how the story is structured. And then the, the lands that these men come from, they represent places that, that have heard about Yahweh. So they it's possible that they are worshiping the true God. And in fact, we find that they are all worshiping the same God as Job. But none of them are Israelites. So it's as if, um, if you're telling the story to a child, you're saying they, they all lived far away and along came three people who, even though they, were, they came from widespread origins, they, they all worshiped the same God and had the same beliefs. And... These were, these were centers of thought. And so the, the idea being presented by having the, these friends assemble from various points of the compass is that the wisest men in the world are coming to try their, to try their philosophies against this problem that Job presents. And what is the problem that Job presents? Well, we know something, and this is an example of what you might remember from your English classes in school. The book of Job is an example of dramatic irony, which is when you, the reader, know something that, that the characters don't know. So Job's big question is, why am I suffering? What is going on that, caused, that has put me in this position? 
I know that I've done nothing wrong. The obvious conclusion to draw is that I'm being punished, but I know that I'm not being punished. And the, the friends make the assumption that Job is afraid of, that Job has been cursed because of his behavior. But we, but Job knows differently, and we know differently. We know differently because we were privy to the prologue, the scene between God and Satan. We know that Job is actually the most right, righteous man on the face of the earth. And so, therefore, the question for us is already settled. And in fact, we have an indication, if not the exact answer, we have some indication as to why. The, the reason for Job's suffering is just because Satan had a whim that he wanted that he wanted to test Job. But Job spends the rest of the book asking why. And he doesn't know what we know, which is that um, God and Satan had a bet. They were rolling, they were playing dice for his fate. So the the three friends approach and they're they can see that Job is suffering so much that they sit down for seven days and nobody says a word because words are inadequate. But finally uh, Job, they, they begin this dialogue, and what happens is Job speaks, and then Eliphaz speaks, then Job speaks, then Bildad speaks, Job speaks, then Zophar speaks, and they each have a chapter or so in this dense Hebrew poetry, and then they start again, and they go through three cycles of this. And the, the poetry takes the same basic form every, every time through the cycle, which is Job, he, first of all, we think of Job, and Job is portrayed in, in lessons and in talks as always having the perfect attitude toward God. But in fact, what happens, and I again, like last week when I recommended this with the book of Ecclesiastes, I recommend you go onto BibleHub.com, and on the upper left, you select the book of Job, and you read the entire book of Job, or the piece, the, the parts of the book that you're going to read, you read them in another translation. And one of the translations that I read uh, this for this lesson was the New Living Translation. It's very clear. It's not... And as we discussed, the, as we discussed last time, the different philosophies of translation go all the way from idiomatic to interlinear. So you can get, you can get something that preserves the ideas but translates them into modern language and modern idioms. And you can go all the way to the other extreme, which is interlinear, which is translating word for word. Um, So the New Living Translation is a little bit more idiomatic, which is what you want when you're reading something that's this philosophical. You want to understand the the ideas rather than the words. And then if you want to go back and read something that's more interlinear, that, that gets more into detail when you read it a second time, and that's the the... King James translation that we have in our Bible is not idiomatic. It was it was closer to idiomatic in the time when it was uh, translated, but it's still very close to the original meaning, and you will have a lot of um, archaic constructions preserved from the Hebrew into English, which in a in a more idiomatic translation you won't have. That's the benefit of reading the King James version. But it's not uh, necessarily, if you, if you want to go back and understand what words are being used, that, that would be profitable for you. But it's not really necessary to, to get the Hebrew ideas behind uh, a lot of this stuff. Basically, what you want to know is, 
what arguments are the friends using against Job, and what and how is Job defending himself? What are they saying? What kinds of things are they saying? What ideas are they using? So Job uh, actually starts out by saying, "Curse, curse the day I was born. I wish I'd never been born. I wish that God had." turned all the light of that day into darkness. Job is so miserable. We're, he's, we're, he's trying to get across the idea that he was the most blessed of men, and now he is in the utmost of misery. There is nothing that could be worse. He's so he's in such despair that he wishes that every day of his life was erased, that on the day he was born, God had destroyed everything and made the stars darkness and turn turn light into darkness and kept him in his mother's womb and and this is repeated several times throughout the book he he wishes to die he wishes for death he thinks if only my my death is coming soon i know because i'm suffering so much and if only god would be merciful and crush me now and finish the job that he started so then eliphaz steps up and we begin the dialogues and the dialogues all take the same, they use different metaphors, they use different images, but they all take the same basic format, which is, well, we know God is just. And so, Job, why don't you stop denying what everyone can see, that you're a wicked man, you're a sinner, and that you've been cursed? And it's really interesting because we know that the reason that this book is so fascinating is because we know that they're all wrong and yet they're also right because what they say in all of the dialogues they're praising god it's not it's not as though they are saying god is terrible they're saying god is just god rewards the righteous he blesses people and if you act wickedly he will you know your way will not be prospered they say this over and over again you may remember we talked about this idea last week it is the myth of religious fulfillment. It is that the idea that God's justice is perfect in this world under the sun. In this fallen world, we can count on justice, and we can count on it on our timetable. Time and that is the, the very idea that all three of the friends keep saying to Job. So Eliphaz says, do the innocent die? If God doesn't even trust angels, why would he trust people? There are no righteous people. So the innocent don't die. The innocent aren't struck down. The innocent don't suffer. We can tell by the circumstances you're living in, Job, that you must be wicked. So why don't you just repent? And Job replies, God has indeed cursed me. He's, he struck me with arrows, and he uses a lot of uh, metaphors to explain how he feels like God is his enemy. God is, is arrayed against him almost as in battle. And you'll also see, if you, read the, if you read the entire book of Job, a lot of these chapters, most of the chapters of the dialogues are not, part of the, are not included in the reading for this lesson. So if you want to do extra credit, you can read those. But I'll summarize them. Uh, in, this, in this first reply, he says, God has, has acted towards me as he would towards an enemy. And so then, therefore, don't I have a right to complain? I wish he'd finish the job. And he's also, he also says, you're, you're not really friends to me. All of you are saying, uh, and he's foreshadowing a little bit because we haven't heard from all the friends yet, but he's, he says, all of you are, are saying that 
I'm wicked, but you don't know. You, you are like a dried up oasis in the desert. People go to you hoping for relief and for comfort and for refreshment. And instead, what they find is this dry patch of sand that only makes it worse. So uh, here you all are standing around me, mocking me, telling me I'm wicked, and it's just not true. So Bildad steps forward and says, those who forget God are leaning on a spider's web. And he uses a lot of, of imagery to show how, point, how fruitless it is to forget God and how powerless you are when you forget God. And the idea is the same, that Job, you wouldn't be in this situation if you had remembered God. Uh, you and and then he, in an obvious reference to Job's the the condition of Job's body, he says, "Those who forget God, they won't be remembered. Their fre- their flesh will be eaten away." And Job, this is when Job starts to talk about taking God to court. He says, and so there are a lot of legal. Uh, there's a lot of legal imagery throughout the book of Job. Job says again and again, if I were to plead my case before God, if we were at trial, if if God would ever let me testify, then he would see the truth of it. So what he wants, again, we see that Job's ultimate desire is for justice. Now this is in direct contrast to what uh, what most people want. Most people, what they want is mercy. They want justice for other people because they are wrong, they have been wronged by other people. And we'll talk about that next time as we discuss the book of Jonah. What we want is justice for others and mercy for ourselves. And Job is expressing the other side of that coin, which is when we're righteous, we want justice and we want it now. We want to be treated the way we know we deserve to be treated because we've been righteous. So Job is... Job is expressing again and again, I wish I were in a court of law. I wish I were in a place where justice was guaranteed and immediate and that God could be brought there. But who can bring God to to court? Who could compel him to come? And who could enforce whatever the court decided? Who could enforce its decrees on God? No one can. And why was I condemned? I didn't even have a trial. My friends hate me. And, uh, and, in one of these responses in, in the dialogues, that's when we get Job's famous quote, I, but I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, a Redeemer in the, in the Old Testament sense isn't the way that we understand it um, in the New Testament sense. With an understanding of the atonement, we get that Christ is our Redeemer, meaning that he has suffered for our sins. And the, the, the basic idea is the same, but it's a little bit less spiritual of an idea. So in the law of Moses, if you had when the firstborn of all of the flocks, whenever whatever animal was born first, male animal was born first to its mother, was decreed that it should be sacrificed as a, as a young animal to God. So the first sheep that's born, the first male sheep, was required as a sacrifice. And then thereafter, you could keep all the animals that were born to that mother. Well, if it, if it was a donkey, donkeys were not suitable animals for sacrifice. And so that donkey had to be redeemed with a sheep or with a ram. So that's kind of what it meant is uh, simply an offering that was put in place of another offering. And so when Job says, my redeemer, that's it's the introduction to this idea that God redeems people 
the way that the people redeemed donkeys, that God would get in the way and provide a sacrifice. And they, they did have the imagery of Isaac being bound onto the altar by Abraham, and then he was redeemed by a ram who had his horns caught in a thicket. And similarly, when, when Job expresses the idea that I know that God, my Redeemer, liveth, meaning somehow God is going to find a way for my suffering to end. But it wasn't the same idea that we had to have our sins forgiven through uh, an ultimate and infinite atonement. That, that idea was still... Um, well, let me say it was lost because we have evidence in the Book of Mormon that they that they were taught that. But for most of the 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 Old Testament, as it's been preserved for us today, the idea is not discussed. So what Job meant by redeemer was something a little less spiritual and a little more practical or pragmatic. But I know that my redeemer liveth, and in my flesh I will see God. Though the worms destroy this body, and there's some the way we understand or have uh, traditionally understood this verse is that though I die and my body decomposes, yet in my flesh I will see God. In other words, I will be resurrected. And that may be what this means. It also might be that Job is saying, worms are now, even now, eating my flesh. But I believe that before I die, I will see God. And so there is some ambiguity about what he's saying. Uh, and I bring that up just so that we can understand the, the context. He's saying, uh, God is on my side. And one one day I will have justice. I'm, and I'm, I'm crying out for it with every moment. So Bildad says what he says. Then Zophar steps up and says, Job, you, you talk like somebody who knows about God, but knowledge of God is higher than the heavens. What do you know? And then Job again says, everyone everyone mocks me. They know my challenges are coming, or they, they seem to know my challenges are coming from God, but they're all wrong. I want to argue my case in front of God himself. And uh, why is it, they all say that the wicked are punished by God and that the righteous prosper, but I know that wicked people prosper. I've seen, their, I've seen wicked people go to their grave in peace, watching their grandchildren play and enjoying all the the fruits of their labor, and enjoying the fruits of their wickedness until the day they die of, of a, something, die in their sleep at a nice ripe old age. And so Job is expressing the same idea that we got from Ecclesiastes, which is we, can't, we, we do believe that for the most part, God's justice holds, and yet there are plenty of counterexamples that we can find where both the righteous are made to suffer and the wicked are made to prosper. And then uh, in, in one of the cycles of these dialogues, the friends start imagining what Job's sins were. So they imagine that Job's sins were everything from lending money and taking people's clothes off their back as collateral or withholding food and drink from the, from the hungry and thirsty and withholding help from widows and orphans and... Uh, to, all the way from that to being a thief and an adulterer who waits for the dark, the cover of darkness to commit sin. And Job keeps protesting his integrity and his righteousness. He says, I will, I will protest my integrity until the day I die. And God alone 
And then he talks about wisdom almost as though it's personified and talks about how people dig mines and tunnels in the earth to find metal. But even down there, they don't find wisdom. And the highest soaring eagle can't find it in the sky. And no matter how far you search, you can't find wisdom. The only person who knows where wisdom is is God. So Job kind of bounces back and forth. Not He's not 100% God is the greatest. God knows what he's doing the whole time. As, as we often think of Job, he's, he's saying Job is really, really suffering with the idea that God might not be actually as good as everyone says. And God certainly doesn't seem to love me right now at this moment. God is actually my enemy, and I can't escape him because he knows everything and he's everywhere. But I certainly feel beset by him. I certainly feel as though he's not on my side and he's even trying to hurt me. He has a, he's actively opposing me and tormenting me. So Job is doubting God's motives and he's doubting God's goodness. Whereas the, the friends are surrounding Job and telling him that God is just and good and that he, Job, is a sinner. Now, all of those things are true. And it's really interesting that we just happen to know that Job is, has the right of the argument. Because we were uh, able to, to read about this prologue before the dialogues began. Otherwise, we would be reading this and thinking, yes, these are wise men talking to a sinner. And that is very deliberate. It's on purpose. It's the, it's the entire reason for the book of Job to be written, is that this dramatic irony that is set up between the way things seem, and the way thing, the way we know that things actually are. So finally, the three friends give up, and then there's this bystander na- named Elihu. And he says, I've been watching all you, you're all old men, and I know that I should show respect for my elders, but none of you have been able to silence Job, and so I'm actually wiser than any of you. And now I'm going to, now I'm going to silence Job and tell him the way it is. And this, this is... Reading Elihu is when I first started realizing this is very equivalent to what we would think of today as a rap battle. Job or Elihu comes forward and says, I'm, you know, none of you know anything and I know, I know everything and let me diss this homie and, uh, you know, none of you could do it properly. And so then he, he starts talking about, Elihu starts talking about how God is not a respecter of persons and it doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter if you're a king or a nobleman, that God will find a way to make his will known. And the fact that you're, and therefore the fact you're suffering, Job, that's the proof. So we know God extends his justice from the rich to the poor, and it doesn't matter. And these are all scriptural sayings. So what we have in these four people t- trying to tell Job the way how wicked he is, is the combined wisdom and philosophies of men mingled with scripture. And they are, they are, there's nothing, there's no one statement that you can look at in any of these dialogues and point to and say, that statement was incorrect. Every one of them is supportable by scripture, and it's actually true. And yet, if you step back and if you look at it from a distance, the entire thing that they're saying is wrong. So on the one hand, every word they're saying, every sentence, every idea they're expressing is true. And on the other hand, they're wrong. They're wrong about Job. And finally, Job says, uh, you know, I will protest my, 
I will protest my righteousness until the day I die. I'll never, I'll never give up because I know that this is not just punishment. And at this point, God appears. And uh, again, I'll note that everyone, the entire book of Job, except for the epilogue and the prologue, all of these dialogues, and that includes from God, it's all poetry. So if, and you'll see that if you read this on Bible Hub, and in, in most of those translations, you'll see it um, indented and with the, with the line divisions that are preserved from the original Hebrew. And they have a similar number of syllables. Obviously, if we could read it in the original Hebrew, uh, we would feel the meter and the other poetic elements that are present in the original book of Job. So, again, God God shows up and starts saying, spouting poetry at Job, saying, um, okay, now I'm here. Job, you've, you've asked me to show up. So God, God appears, and at this point, Job is really humbled, and Job has been wishing the entire book. I wish I could present my case before God. I wish I could tell him all of the things that have been done to me wrongly, and I wish I could ask him why I'm suffering. This is his burning question. And as soon as God appears, Job seems to forget that question. And God says, Job, let me, let me show you what it's like to be God. And he starts out by showing him the creation. We don't actually know that he shows it to him. He's, he's asking these questions, but we can imagine when God speaks, uh, there are some what you might think of as visual aids or perhaps, you know, visions of some sort. And, and God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And this is another famous quote from the book of Job, when the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. So he's, he's speaking of the joy of creation and he's saying, were you there? And, and it's, at one point God even gets sarcastic with Job and he says, well, you, you are old enough. You know all these things. I, I shouldn't be telling you this. You're a wise man. Can you direct the weather? And, he, and God explains all of the mighty works that he does with weather. Where do you keep, do you know where you keep hail and rain when, it, when it's not being used? I keep it for my, for my armaments against times of trouble. Do you, do you know how to feed wild animals, Job? Do you know how long a mountain goat holds do you know the number of months that a mountain goat mother holds the baby in the womb before she gives birth? Can you find a place for the mountain goat to give birth? Do you feed lions? Can you, if you were to take a wild ox and leave it in your field, would it obey you? And could you come back and have and and trust that that wild ox would have gathered all your grain in and brought it into your threshing floor? So he, God asks Job a number of hypothetical questions or rhetorical questions, saying. Job, could you do all of these things that I obviously have done since the beginning of creation, which is watch over the weather, watch over the the animals, the wild animals, watch over the expanse of land and the seas. Can you do any of those things, Job? Can you take those things in your hand and can you direct them rightly? And then he asks Job the question that has been on the minds of everyone speaking. Job, if I were to tell you that you had my power, could you give people justice the way you've been crying out for? Can you, can you deliver justice to the vast family of man? Can you, can you say to this person, you deserve this, you deserve that, and here it is. I know exactly how to give it to you and when. 
so these are these are just questions that God keeps asking to Job, and Job is um, so humbled that he says, "I'm not I'm not going to say a word. God's God's wisdom is too much for me." And then, and God's point is that His world is so complex, and He has so many purposes that obviously cannot be known by man, that there really isn't a point to responding to Job's question. Now, there is an answer in the book of Job. There is an answer to Job's question, why me? But that answer is ignored. And the point kind of is, that really isn't the answer. So God and Satan are having this discussion and therefore Job suffers. We've dropped that by this point. The fact is we just don't get to know. Job is suffering because God has determined that in his infinite wisdom, And that's kind of the point of God's utterance here, that my wisdom is infinite. Can you direct the stars in their course across the the heavens? Can you put the constellations together and send them season by season and raise them and lower them in the sky as appropriate? And And then God talks about two mythical creatures. And the names of these creatures are Behemoth and Leviathan. And these are two mythical and uh, legendary creatures in ancient Near Eastern tradition and Hebrew tradition. And Behemoth is a land animal, and Leviathan is a sea animal. And sometimes they're represented as a hippo and a crocodile. But they're also represented as a huge, almost like a combination between an ox and a bear, just the size of a building or bigger, and then a, a sea dragon or a sea serpent. So what the point is, one is a land animal and one is a sea animal, and they're as big as they get. They are absolute monsters. And they were fully believed in during this time. Uh, And so this is another reason why this is kind of, it kind of makes sense to read the book of Job as an allegory, because uh, these, these beasts have clearly a symbolic meaning. And God, the fact that God brings them up and says, and uses their existence as proof of what he's saying, um, lends a little bit of credence to the idea that this is all a metaphor or an allegory. So, and he, but but God uses them as an example of the chaotic nature of His creation to say, look at these, look at these beasts that I've created, Behemoth and Leviathan. Can you control them? Can you put a rope around Behemoth's neck, or can you put a hook in the mouth of Leviathan and cause them to obey your will? No one can do that except their creator. There's only one person they're subject to. And it's kind of, the point of this is kind of to say that the earth is a dangerous place. It's not a safe place. It's not an, it, it does have order to it, but it's an order that only God can understand and control. And it's well, it's well beyond the strength and the understanding of humans. So that that's kind of the, the end of God's statement, is to show that there are these huge creatures that no man can control, and then God stops talking. And he never responds to Job's question, why me? And he never says, oh, I actually am just. He never defends himself. He just shows Job. He takes Job on a little tour of his creation and explains the complexity, the power of it, the danger behind it, the chaotic nature of some of it, 
and then stops. And there's an excellent, uh, by the way, there's an excellent YouTube video on all of this. Uh, if you if you go on YouTube and, and search for the Bible Project Job, you, there are a couple of videos actually that explain the book of Job. One is a color illustration and one is sort of a, uh, one of those whiteboard, somebody fills out a whiteboard while they're doing a lecture and they're both amazing and, they're, and they both uh, give a, give a really good summary of the book of Job. But the point is, so God finishes talking, and he and at the end of, you know, if this were an epic rap battle, then when he talks about Leviathan, that's the point at which he drops the mic, and he says, this is, this is the sum of my creation. Can you do any of it? Mic drop. And Job at that point, he has no response other than to say, I'm, I'm sorry I said anything at all. Silence, in other words, silence and humility are the only answer. Now we have the epilogue, which is we, we come out of the poetry and we learn that uh, God, oh, it, before, before that happens, God turns to the friends and he says to them, Job, you all were false and Job was true because Job was honest about my character and you weren't. And this is the fascinating part for me, which is he, all of them, as I, as I mentioned before, all of them were saying things that were true, true understandings about the nature of God that people might have. I, I, I'm remembering the study that we made when I was in 11th grade of Puritans in, uh, in New England. And these Puritans came over from England, and they very much believed that if you were a prosperous person, that that prosperity had been given to you by God, and that if you suffered, then that suffering had been given to you by God as a punishment. And therefore, your earthly state was very much a, a statement on your spiritual state. So that's, in other words, that's a very puritanical belief, and it's a belief that has persisted into the modern day. And God, in his response to the friends, says, Job was honest and you were not. Therefore, you have need to repent. So these three friends spend the whole book telling Job how much he needs to repent. And if he wants to get right with God and have his status restored, his former blessings come back, then he needs to repent and remember God or do any of the ways that they talk about righteousness, perform any of those actions. And Job just, all he can do is keep, is continually protest his innocence. And he does that. And at the end, God vindicates him and says, if you three want to be forgiven, then you'll bring seven animals each to Job, and he'll sacrifice them for you and pray for you. And when he prays for you, then I'll forgive you. In other words, you're not even worthy to pray for your own forgiveness, but you need a perfect man like Job, somebody who was honest before me. And and Job didn't, he wasn't always honoring God, as we, as we mentioned, there were times when he was saying, God is my enemy. He's acting towards me like an, an enemy. He's treating me like an enemy. And I don't know if his justice is actually perfect over the world. And the only thing, the consistent message across all of the friends was, God is just, and you can count on his justice. So the point, and here's the point of the book of Job. This is the point. At the very end, God tells these three friends, you have to repent because you haven't been honest. In other words, you were wrong when you said that I'm perfectly just 
under the sun, if we can borrow a phrase from Ecclesiastes. In this fallen world, it is not accurate to say that my justice can, and can be counted on to act in your timetable. And you need to repent by, by going to somebody who actually was honest from that viewpoint. That's a viewpoint that you have to leave behind and have to work on. And then the epilogue is that Job does the sacrifice, the friends are forgiven, and then all of Job's former blessings return twofold. He has all the camels and the, the donkeys and the sheep that he had before, and then he has another seven sons and three daughters. And, and he put his daughters into his will, which, which is um, a way of saying that he treated them equally to his sons. Um, you, you might remember we talked about birthright and how the oldest son would get a double portion in order to care for any sisters and uh, a, a surviving mother, a surviving widow of the father that died. Well, Job went one step better and put his daughters into his will. And so everybody gets an equal portion. And Job lives another 140 years after all of this and lives to see his children, great-grandchildren to the fourth generation, and then he dies. And so the the first level, the surface level lesson is when Job has endured his trials, then he's blessed for his obedience. But on the second level that we've been talking about, that's actually not the case because Job was cursed. His blessings were taken away without reason. And it doesn't explicitly say at the end that he was blessed for his obedience. He was blessed for his faithfulness. It just says that Job had these things given to him. In other words, God has his own reasons and it suited God's purpose to take things away, just like Job said at the beginning, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And it suited God's purpose at the end to give Job blessings again, to have these things restored to Job as a gift. And the truth is, God makes this point in his poetry. He says, all things are already mine. Do I have need of anybody to give me something from below? I don't need anything that anybody gives me. Everyone is in debt to me. This is an idea we find explained and expounded upon very eloquently in the address of King Benjamin to the Nephites in the book of Mosiah. But he says, are we not all debtors? Are we not all beggars? If we expended all the energy of our soul unto God, we would still be indebted to him. We would still be unprofitable servants. So that's the that idea actually has its origin in the book of Job, uh, that and God expresses it there at the end of at, at the end of Job. He expresses it there first, which is, I don't need you. You need me, and it would sound prideful if it came from a person. But when we hear it from God, we realize it's absolutely true. And and Job it has the humility to receive this message from God, and to be quiet and to say, I recognize that. My wisdom is not sufficient to understand any of this. I thought that my suffering had a purpose that I could understand and that I had done something wrong. And now I realize that what the best thing for me to do is to trust in God. And so Job, the end of the story finds Job, once again, a blessed man, a prosperous man, somebody that everyone respects and along with his blessings, the respect of those around him has returned. But now Job knows something he didn't know before, which is that none of those things mean anything. The respect 
only is a respect for the for the outward blessings that he has. The thing that he knows deep down is that God has his own purpose purposes and God is all wise and all knowing and the world is a complex place that can't be that doesn't surrender to a simple understanding of the way things quote unquote should be. And now I'd like to discuss a third level of understanding the book of Job. And this this is a lot quicker. We don't need to go through the events of the book. But just remember the characters of the books. We have Job and we have the friends and we have God. And they talk to each other about the reasons why these things might be happening. And on the deeper level, the understanding is this. And this is I think this is where Job is the most profitable for us. I mentioned at the beginning that that Job is most often held up as an example. We should act like Job. When we suffer, we should uh, follow the example of Job, which is to always praise God and continue to have faith even though we're suffering. And uh, that's actually not what Job did. He, he, he had a lot of despair, and he had anguish of soul. And, and that's So the third level is you and I, each of us, have within us a Job. And we have within us these three voices, or these four voices, however you divide it up, to, t- to give us conflicting accounts of the events that come upon us. So we have a Job that when things bad happen to us, we initially we say, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. But we also have a Job that says, why me? God is treating me like an enemy. I haven't done anything wrong. In fact, I've been following the the promptings of the Spirit. Uh, I talked a little bit last week. God has given you, perhaps God has given you guidance in your life, and you followed it. And then you made an assumption when you followed that advice that at the end of it, there was some specific blessing waiting for you. Well, if that blessing wasn't part of the original prompting, then you've made an assumption. You've set your expectations. And... When we when we buy into this myth of religious fulfillment, then our expectations are the problem. And that's what Job discovered. His expectations were that he'd been blessed for righteousness and that if he continued righteous, that he'd always be, have the same blessings and they'd never be interrupted. And he discovered that it wasn't a problem. He didn't do it. The problem wasn't his obedience. The problem was his expectations and his lack of understanding of the infinite wisdom of God. So we have within us these two, these two def- different aspects of Job, the Job that is stoic and patient and understanding, and the Job that is in despair and suffering. And the point of that is that God, it, God will give us the amount of suffering required to bring us to our knees. If, if at first losing our flocks and losing, even losing our children doesn't make us doubt God's goodness, then he'll keep piling it on until we do. And that isn't even the thing we need to repent of. The thing we need to repent of is the expectation that God's justice is perfect in our life, that we are always going to see immediate rewards for our good acts and see immediate punishments for our bad acts. But Job was rewarded for approaching God in honesty and saying, God, I'm suffering. I can't believe this is happening. Help me understand why. All of those things were imparted to Job for righteousness. So we also have within us these friends 
who are telling these voices in our head that are telling us, you must have done something wrong. This voice is called shame. And you must have done something wrong to deserve what you're getting. You must be wicked. We know that even angels are wicked. No one is perfect. And therefore, all of the bad things that are happening to you, they're curses. You've brought them on yourself. Now, sometimes this is true, obviously. Sometimes we bring bad consequences on ourselves, and it is immediate. But sometimes we sit around wondering when, when terrible things happen, wondering why me? And we, then, then the voices start in, and we, we give heed to these voices, which is, you're a bad person. You deserve every bad thing that could possibly happen to you. Look at how terrible your life is. That's proof that you are a sinner. That's proof that you need to repent. And you can spend, and the, and the reason God chastised the friends for these messages was because Job could have spent his whole life repenting and not gotten his blessings back because they weren't taken away because of sin. The point is we can't understand all of the purposes of God. We can try and we can understand, certainly we can understand the consequences of the good and bad acts that we, that we do see. And that we're not absolved from that duty just because the book of Job gives us another way of looking at things. But we are encouraged to be honest with God and recognize we can't see all of the reasons why suffering might come into our lives. And some of that suffering can only be made worse by blaming ourselves, by allowing these voices to constantly berate us and tell us we must be wicked sinners when we know we've been trying to repent, we've been trying to obey God, we've been doing the work of a faithful disciple. And this is the point of the book of Job. The book of Job is, if if it is a historical work, it is also an excellently and eloquently written allegory of our own spiritual progress and our belief in God and our understanding of the chaotic world and the imperfect world in which we live. We have to accept that we live in an imperfect and fallen world and that God nevertheless is over it all. And he sees everything from the smallest particle to the, to the stars above and he guides them all in their course. He's aware of how to feed a wild donkey that's born and runs away from it's born in the wild and runs away from all civilization. And he sees to it that that donkey is constantly fed. He sees that to it that the lions are fed. He knows the number of months that a wild mountain goat will need to carry its young before it gives birth. And the point of all of that is God is over all. And when we, the, the closer we get to a realization of his grandeur and his wisdom, the more likely we are to be that third Job at the end that says the only proper response to the questions of God is a humble and reverent silence to say, God, I accept your will, and I now see that I'm not capable of disputing even the suffering I'm going through. The fact that it's me is not significant in any meaningful way. It might as well be me as another person that's going through suffering because there is pleasure 
and there is enjoyment and there is suffering and privation in life. And sometimes I'll be in one and sometimes I'll be in the other. Well, I hope that helps with your understanding of the book of Job. I find it to be one of the deepest and most profound books in all of the Bible because it's very abstract. It's not the life and interactions of a prophet among the people, a people struggling to follow the commandments of God. It's a symbolic story of a single person brought face to face with the injustice and the chaotic nature of life and who comes at the end to finally recognize the beneficent face of God that underlies all of creation. And so I pray that we can understand the book of Job on all three of the levels we've discussed and perhaps others that I may be unaware of, and that we can believe in God and wait for his timing, and we can be honest with him and approach him in a way that allows us to escape the trap of shame and those inner voices that tell us that no matter what we do, we deserve every bad thing, that we can believe that he is a good God, a God of forgiveness, and though a God that we may not understand all the time, a God who has an infinite amount of love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Once upon a time, I was a blessed man. Then the unthinkable occurred. I've lost everything. God opened up an artery, full on assault and battery. He took my sons and daughters. He left my houses empty. He made my eyelids watery. Yesterday I won the lottery. Now I scraped my skin with pottery. Don't get me wrong. You'll never hear me say that God didn't smile on me a while or brighten up my day. Blessed be his name. The wall I feel right now is pain. He gave all to me first before he took it all away. Check it out. Job is Elephaz. I brought my homies with me. Though when you hear my message, I think you'll want to hit me. If I were cursed like you, it'd be my attitude that bit me. If I ain't done nothing wrong, God ain't gonna want to get me. Ain't nobody innocent. Even angels fall from grace. Why you sit in wine when God puts you in your place? Wish I could summon God to court, then I could prove my case. Got no need for saving face, just an end to my disgrace. But even if I die, I know my Redeemer liveth. He taketh and he giveth, and hopefully forgiveth. This is Bildad, now listen to my word. You're leaning on a spider's web, cause you forgot the Lord. If you can't live in peace, you're always running from the sword. When you won't admit your faults, is when your prayers will be ignored. So friends, you are, you're like a dry oasis. Attack me without basis, how desolate this place is. God has stuck me with arrows, why shouldn't I complain? I wish he'd turn the water on and wash me down the drain. Listen to Zophar, tell you God is higher than high. How can you question when the lesson cannot help but apply? If you were right. Your peaceful blessings would flow Instead they all go, that's how I know what I know You mock me, but I got the truth inside me No need to deride me, cause God sanctified me Sometimes a good get hurt, got rubs some face in the dirt That's why you see me here in ashes wearing a burlap shirt But I know this mobster, every night he eats lobster The righteous are punished, while the wicked they prosper My name is Alihu, I say hashtag me too Job, your hygiene is lacking and your logic is see-through I've watched with suppressed sob this elite but a feet mob Trying in vain to diss a man whose name should be pronounced John You're person and reversing, your situation worsens This pride you got, I say God's not respecter of the person Since I suffer, you conclude that 
I am a sinner. I eat bitter herbs for dinner, but of this battle, I'm the winner. The only thing I know for sure is I kept my integrity. You say my soul's in jeopardy, but I doubt you would bet with me, so I'll say see you later. Joe, this is your creator. One mistake I love you make is that I'm not some cosmic waiter. I've heard your invective. Your objective is corrective, and you may have gone to school, but you took the wrong elective. You're looking at the infinite from limited perspective. Your opinion is subjective, and you need a new directive. And from now on, when choosing friends, why not be more selective? You question my methods, and you question your worth, but did you aid when I laid the foundations of the earth? Your birth was not the beginning, and you were still a boy long after morning stars and angels sang and shouted for joy. I'm the maker of Zion. Can you even feed a lion? While donkeys, mountain goats is the trade I'm plying. Man has nothing but problems of his own manufacture. I put cattle in the pasture while you watch for the rapture, which one of you by thinking has one cubic to his stature. I push Pleiades, Orion's belt across the sky, and to Satania Prosecutor, I'm a heck of a guy. You think I act with malice, me? Well, that's a fallacy. If this rhyme is complicated, try wrangling the galaxy. Cut your ballast free, then challenge me. It's the abstract hand of my mercy my creations rely upon. They know I'm the higher one, even behemoth Leviathan. Don't try me, son. Now that I've gotten just an inkling of the things God knows, I've seen enough and man is nothing, which I'd never have supposed. When I suffer, things get tougher when I face my pharaohs. If I just invest my trust, I'll get the heaven I chose. Now if you listen this far to all my sad allegory, the moral of the story is to God be the glory.